0: Welcome to our Ecclesia study where we investigate the claims of the Bible. For many people, one of the main deterrents to accepting the teachings of Jesus is the noticeable disconnect between what Jesus taught and what many self-professed Christians say and do. As we investigate the Bible, we look into how C.I. Schofield and his reference Bible have influenced literally thousands of evangelical pastors and millions of evangelical Christians into fervently believing that the modern state of Israel is a fulfillment of biblical prophecy and should be revered and supported without question in spite of its undemocratic and inhumane treatment of both Christian and Muslim Palestinians for over 60 years of occupation. Our study leader is Mark Horton, president of Ultra Clean Corporation, and a diligent student of the Bible. Our reader is We Hold These Truths' faithful volunteer and dramatist, Leslie Ford. Thanks for joining in our quest.
1: In today's Christ Follower's Bible Study, we're continuing on in the book of Acts. We had a fantastic introduction last week, and we thank you for that, Mark. And we'll be continuing on. We'll be starting in verse 9 of chapter 1. And as we like to do, we'll open with a word of prayer. Thanks, Lord, again, for allowing us to come together, together to study your word and to contemplate what you've given us through this powerful book, our Bible, that uh, we can reflect and use it in our lives. And we're thankful for that, and we're thankful for Mark in his faithfulness to this study. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Amen. Hi, Mark. Amen.
2: Yeah. Good evening. It's good to be back with everyone here. We just started talking about the the Book of Acts, which is a continuation of the Gospel according to Luke, and the title has even uh, changed its name through the years. Uh, it was actually, apparently, the earliest manuscripts or references to earliest manuscripts, Luke and Acts were were uh, together in one scroll or book and had a different, completely different name, which I don't remember at the moment. But uh, then a couple of hundred years go by and they start grouping the four Gospels together and then Acts got broken out from Luke. But we, we mentioned that there's no uh, doubt that they have the same author. The author is probably Luke the physician who was a Greek, not a Judean, and it was someone who spent a lot of time with Paul. Paul is the central character in the last two-thirds or three-fourths of the book, but that's later. We haven't got there yet. The overriding theme of Acts is the restoration of the kingdom of Israel, and we're going to be looking at how that fits in with different views and And things as we go through the book. The other interesting thing is that Acts is completely parallel to Luke. It starts over. Whereas Luke's talked about what Christ did in his physical body, Acts talks about what Christ is doing through his new collective spiritual body of believers. And it's quite interesting the parallels between the two. As we go through here, we talked last time about the first paragraph where Christ told the apostles to wait in Jerusalem for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, Christ, when he began his public work, he went down to be baptized of John. Presumably all of the apostles had already been baptized of John. We know that he gathered up three or four or five of them Right down there amongst the people that John had baptized. So they had already been baptized with John. Christ is baptized by John, and then everyone saw the Holy Spirit descend on him as a dove. So he received a baptism of the Holy Spirit right after he was baptized by John. So the apostles have received the baptism of John. Now they're going to wait for the baptism of the Holy Spirit not many days hence. So this is kind of the first of many, many parallels of Christ in his earthly body and then Christ in his spiritual body of believers. And this is going to go all the way through. Both books end with trials. Uh, Christ being tried before all the rulers of Jerusalem, Paul being tried before the rulers of Rome. So uh, that's interesting. We'll note that as we go on. This promise of the Holy Spirit is very much connected with what we recently looked at at the end of the Gospel of John. There is remarkable agreement between the promises that Christ gave to the disciples in the upper room just before his arrest and the fulfillment of those promises here in the book of Acts. So we want to remember that as we go through here as well. And then we talked in the second paragraph about them asking him if it was time to restore the kingdom to Israel. And virtually every scholar and commentator has bemoaned the fact that the apostles are still completely confused about the nature of the kingdom and all that. But we pointed out last time that he had been appearing to them off and on over 40 days, speaking the things concerning the kingdom of God. And so he wasn't a very good teacher if he's first miraculously opened their minds and opened their eyes, showed them how all the prophecies uh, applied to him there at the end of Luke on the road to Emmaus. And he's now spent 40 days explaining the kingdom. So after all of that, if they're still confused, it looks like he picked the wrong guys. But we know he didn't pick the wrong guys. He picked exactly the right guys, and they did understand the nature of the kingdom. And so they were just asking him a question about the timing of the restoration. And this restoration is going to be a major theme throughout the book of Acts. This is, this is really one way to describe God's eternal purpose, the restoration of Israel or uh, forming a people for his own possession uh, to be the bride of Christ the temple of God on earth and so on it's all it's different imagery talking about the same thing so they understood uh, this by this time and he he answered them that it wasn't for them to know the times or the seasons but of course they were as time went along they were going to be given more and more, Uh, hints or clues about these horrible events that were were coming there upon that generation. But he, he kind of defers that and lets them know that they will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And then he says, you'll be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the other parts of the earth. And this is kind of a table of contents of the book of Acts here. The first part of the book is talking about the apostles in Jerusalem, and that's up until the stoning of Stephen. And then we see them scattering out and uh, going into uh, Samaria in particular and other parts of Judea and Galilee, which was a Judean area as well, in fulfillment of the middle part. And then the last two-thirds of the book is all about Paul and his entourage, going way beyond Palestine to various parts of the known world. And again, we know from various legends that the other apostles uh, went all different ways as well. Their journeys just were not recorded for us uh, in the Scriptures. So that's kind of a summation of what we've talked about and brings us back up here to verse 9 where we'll pick up this evening. There is well. Even though Luke is writing to a non-Judean audience, he still records uh, many, many fulfillments of Old Testament prophecy. And the interestingly, the Israelites at Mount Sinai, God told them that they were to be His witnesses. And now here, the apostles, the disciples, are to be His witnesses. So there, there's all kinds of, of imagery and references to the restoration of Israel in a lot of these verses that, uh, that we might miss if we just pass them quickly. Any uh, thoughts, comments, or questions before we resume with the text here? All right. Well, let's begin by reading verses uh, 9 through 11, please.
3: After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight.
2: Records this time period of 40 days after the resurrection. And during this time, Christ would appear. He, he had already ascended to heaven in a sense, but he had a series of visitations where he would just suddenly appear right in the middle of a room or fade in through a wall or fade out through a wall or in a cloud or, or something like that. So, pardon me, this resurrection. I mean, uh, Ascension, rather, is not necessarily as unique as, as I have thought about it my whole life. It was one of, of a number of quick disappearances that he made. He's not really in his physical body, although he has the appearance of his physical body, and he ate at times and so on, and I don't understand all the nuances of this, but there was something different about him because if we recall at the end of the Gospel of John, he's already created kind of a new body. Spiritually speaking, his side is opened up. Blood and water comes out. He, a new family has been created. He says, Mother, behold thy son. Son, behold thy mother. And he gives he had already given lots of, of clues about this uh, in the hours leading up to his arrest and so on. So his new body is really a spiritual body of believers. He has the appearance of his physical body there, and this is the final time that he disappears in that uh, form. He had been surrounded by a cloud at the transfiguration, and of course all through the Old Testament, God's presence was surrounded by clouds. Every coming in judgment announced by an Old Testament prophet just about, is described as coming in the clouds. So there have been many comings in the clouds, appearances in the clouds, a few disappearances in the clouds. This is the common imagery for the presence of God amongst men. And so he's surrounded by this cloud and then he disappears. And there are two beings who we would take to be angels. Two is the number of witnesses because the law of Moses prescribed that no one could be convicted of a crime without the testimony of two witnesses and so we've, we had two of these beings at the tomb when Christ's body was gone and he had uh, been raised from the dead and now we have two here at his final departure in his uh, bodily form uh, from the disciples so They promise that he is going to come in like manner as you beheld him going into heaven. And this is is actually one of the uh, main verses people go to to counter uh, the Preterist viewpoint that he came in A.D. 70 because they claim that he didn't come in the clouds. However, every coming in judgment in the Bible just about is described as coming in the clouds. And even when you read Josephus' account, they saw these horrible visions in the clouds over Jerusalem uh, during the siege. So anyway, that's an academic point, but uh, I'll let you know about it at this point here. Now, another interesting concept is that he is with them. I mean, they are already his body, and in a sense his spirit is already dwelling in them because you know he's opened their eyes he's given them miraculous uh, recall to be able to recall the things that he taught them and so on and so forth they're going to get a more specific power here in a few days on Pentecost but he's already dwelling in them the point being is that even though he's left them that's only in one form in reality he's already at the right hand of God in heaven when all of these events are going on and from this <laughs> from this location he is able to spiritually dwell in all of the believers so he had already promised them, lo I am with you to the end of the age record of ascension and so on so even though he's, His he's this one image of him is leaving and there's also soon, in another sense, he is with the disciples as he is with us now. And any uh, viewpoint of the end times that gets too heavy on this idea that he's not with us and that we've got to wait for him to come back is really missing one of the main points of the Bible, that, that God's purpose was to create a people for his own possession for him to dwell in. And his spirit dwells in us now just like it dwelled in the apostles at this time. And the true believer does not need to be waiting for him to come back because he lives forever in power inside each one of us. So that's just a few of my thoughts on this paragraph. Anyone else have anything to add?
1: No, it's just revealing, very, very insightful, Mark.
2: Oh, thank you. I've, I always learn a huge amount when I agree to uh, teach one of these classes, and uh, certainly this time I've been able to find new ideas that uh, that I've missed uh, in past years, so I hope uh, you all get as much interest from them as I have so far. Uh, we can continue on here with verses 12 through 14, please.
4: Um, excuse me, Mark. Maybe yep. I do have something before you leave 12. In my role as the official watchdog of the Schofield Reference Bible, I noticed that that uh, verse 11, which you just covered, has a rather different treatment in the 1967 edition. And I'd like to read these three things, three statements that it makes, and let you comment on them one by one, if you'd be so kind. And here's what the Schofield Reference Bible's footnotes tell us about verse 11. Taken together... The New Testament teaches teachings concerning the return of Jesus Christ may be summarized as follows one, the return of Christ is an event. His coming has threefold relations to the Church, to Israel, and to the nations. A to the church, the descent of the Lord into the air to raise believers who have died. And to change the living Christians is a constant expectation and hope. Then it gives certain citations to it. So it, it suggests that this is uh, the, the, the first. Do you want me to read all three first and then you comment on, on them together or you want them one at a time?
2: Well, I guess read all three of them and then I might have to have you reread them one at a time.
4: Okay, then the second one is B. Uh, Now, this is His coming has threefold relations, and here's the relation to, quote, to Israel, the return of the Lord to the earth is to accomplish the yet unfulfilled prophecies of Israel's national regathering, conversion, and establishment in peace and power under the Davidic covenant. That's two. And then item C, to the Gentile nations, the return of Christ is to bring the destruction of the present political world system, period.
2: Okay, I did I did find those three points in the uh, 1908 edition uh, here so I can see them. The first one, uh, let me just verify. it's uh, to the church, the descent of the Lord into the air to raise the sleeping and change the living saints to set forth as a constant expectation hope. Is that the same as the new edition? Yes. Okay, so uh, again there, there's partial truth in this but obviously a big, big change particularly with B, the middle one so let me address that first to a dispensationalist when you see the word Israel it has to always be talking about physical Israel because they don't acknowledge the concept or existence of spiritual Israel and so they say that these unfulfilled prophecies of her national regathering. What we are going to be looking at in the book of Acts is the fulfillment of her national regathering, the restoration of the kingdom of Israel. And it's just in a spiritual Israel instead of the physical Israel that the dispensationalists demand. Just They make up the rule and then they demand everyone else follow it. So we will be examining how this point B is accomplished as we go through the book of Acts. We'll be seeing the exact wording used from the Old Testament prophecies that he claims are unfulfilled, and we'll see how the apostles are claiming that they are being fulfilled right in their hearers' and readers' view as these acts unfold. So that will be quite interesting to see. And then, of course, point C is, is closely related to it, to the Gentile nations. The return is predicted to bring the destruction of the present political world system. And and he references Daniel here. And we looked at the book of Daniel and pointed out how Daniel, as a great patriot, was concerned with the political world system of Judea and uh that when he's talking about the last days, it's about the last days of his people, Israel. And we saw that over and over again in Daniel. So I won't rehash all of that. But Daniel also predicted the in-gathering of the Gentiles into the kingdom of Israel at the last days of physical Israel. And so, again, I differ with the point C here in the Schofield Reverence Bible. Now, back to point A, the coming doesn't really relate to the church at all. The coming of Christ was a prediction made for Israel and to Israel. And as we have seen in prophet after prophet, the prophets made no distinction between the first coming or appearance of Christ and the second at all. It was one event. Even John the Baptist, the, the first prophet to appear on the scene after 400 years, he came preaching the kingdom was at hand and the destruction of Israel was at hand. It was all one event even in his mind. And it was one in the minds of all of the previous prophets as well. So these, these promises weren't made to the church. The church as such didn't even exist. All of these promises were made to physical Israel. Simeon in the temple, when Jesus is brought in to be dedicated, he's, he's been told he will see the hope of Israel before he dies, and he gets to see uh, Jesus Christ. So, so the resurrection, we remember, was a promise made to Israel in the book of Daniel. The coming of the Lord, uh, first and second, however you describe it, that was a promise to Israel, given to Israel. And it was their constant expectation and hope. And we'll see that over and over again. Paul speaks of the resurrection as the hope of Israel. And and the resurrection in his mind is one and the same with the coming of Christ and uh, the judgment that it brings and the deliverance that it brings. So there is truth mixed in with all three of these points but there is also a serious error and the worst one is just the inability to grasp the the biblical concept of uh, spiritual Israel.
3: You're talking about Israel uh, of the Old Testament, the kingdom in reference to Israel, not as Judea uh, of Jesus' day?
2: Well, yeah, that's an excellent point because we just spent quite a bit of time in the Gospel of John, and John doesn't focus on David or the restoration of the kingdom per se, whereas Luke and some of the other writers do, and Acts certainly does. But the kingdom that was typified by the monarchy uh, was Saul and then David and then Solomon. And when Solomon died, the kingdom split into two, and you had Israel and Judea. And then Judea continued to be ruled by physical descendants of David until... 586 or shortly before when that was done away with. So there's been no Davidic king for Israel or Judea since at least 586, depending on how you reckon it back. And there were many prophecies that talked about David's seed ruling forever and ever and and so on and so forth. So the kingdom the uh, and the restoration of the Davidic kingdom was very much in the minds of of all Judeans, and the apostles, of course, were consumed by it. And as we've already pointed out, they've just had their eyes opened to the spiritual nature of this restoration. So there is a distinction between the Davidic kingdom, certainly, and the first century Judea. All right, well then let's read verses 12 through 14, please.
3: When they returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, A Sabbath day's walk from the city, when they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer Along with the, the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers.
2: All right, thank you. So the, the Mount of Olives sits just to the east of Jerusalem, on the other side of the Valley Kidron, and the the whole uh, western face is a Jewish, a g- giant Jewish cemetery, and they're packed in there so tight you can hardly believe it. But it wasn't like that in uh, at the time. You know, this was written. A Sabbath journey was derived from two different uh, aspects of the law of Moses. You were told you couldn't travel on the Sabbath. And then there was some uh, distance given kind of an oh, yeah, the, the distance outside of the city walls that the Levites were allowed to pasture their animals. So the Pharisees combined those two aspects of the law and created this regulation that you could only go this far on the, on the Sabbath. And uh, the Mount of Olives is, is close. I mean, it's a, it's a short walk. So they, they were allowed to walk that far on the Sabbath. This isn't necessarily on the Sabbath, but uh, that just tells you that it wasn't very far away. Because remember, Luke is writing here to uh, Greek and Roman uh, readers who wouldn't be familiar with these common details of Judean life necessarily. Now, they came in back into the walled city and went into the upper room where they were staying. And a uh, very interesting fact that I learned on my trip over there to Palestine uh, a few years ago is that in the first century, when you used the term upper room, it was not just an upstairs room. It, it meant a formal dining room that was built above a family burial cave and within the walls of Jerusalem we only know of about three or four uh, burials inside the walls of the city and uh, there are remnants of about three of these burial caves uh, still there today and we actually went and sat on top of one of them and uh, sang some hymns (laughs) because we were presumably we were very close to this exact spot where, the, where Jesus had been giving them their final instructions where they observed the Last Supper together. And now where they go back, they're kind of holed up, trying to probably avoid the authorities uh, a little bit. So they were in an upper room in Jerusalem, and that was a rare uh, place. And the, their, these three tombs are down in the southeast corner of the old walled city, very close to the pool of Siloam, which we'll talk about in chapter 2, perhaps. Then we have the name list of the uh, eleven now. We've lost uh, Judas Iscariot and so there are uh, eleven names here. There are uh, three or four lists of the apostles and they all agree, although a couple of these guys like Simon the Zealot have two different names. Judas, the son of James, I think he's called Justice maybe in one of the lists and so on. But uh, it's very easy to harmonize these lists. They were all in one accord, continuing steadfastly in prayer with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brethren. Women receive much better treatment by Luke than any other Bible writer just about. He, He really gives more details of their contributions than most of the Bible writers have done. And we know that these women, uh, there was a group of women who basically provided the money for Jesus and His uh, disciples to uh, wander around for three years uh, doing His teaching work and so on. And this may be the last time Mary the mother of Jesus is mentioned chronologically uh, in the Bible is at this point. Uh, Perhaps she's mentioned one more time, but not too often after this. And then his brethren. We know that the brothers of Christ, and in one place we're told he had sisters as well, so it was a fairly large family. It was about the third century that certain influential Christians developed the concept that virginity was preferable to uh, marriage and childbearing. And so they developed the concept of the eternal virginity of Mary and also of Joseph, interestingly. And so they explained away these brothers and sisters as cousins or some of them children of another marriage of Joseph uh, or something. Mm. But uh, the doctrine of the perpetual virginity of Mary came about quite a bit later. And, I mean, just objectively looking at the Bible, you don't really see much. Uh, evidence for it. Apparently, she and Joseph had quite a number of children, and Joseph may have had children from a previous marriage, which could have been uh, half brothers and sisters to Jesus as well. I mean, we don't know. But interestingly, his brethren had really little to do with him during his three years of public work, but they become uh, prominent in the church here after his resurrection. Uh, James, presumably his brother, became the uh, the leader of the church in Jerusalem. Uh, one of the there wasn't such a thing as the presiding apostle or the presiding elder, but James, the brother of Jesus, uh, in the Jerusalem church, and Peter amongst the apostles, kind of stood out as uh, as natural leaders. All right, any other thoughts on this? Okay, well let's look at. Um, well, we'll have to break just kind of in the middle there, 15 down through
3: 20, please. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120, and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through the mouth of David concerning Judas, who served as guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and shared in this ministry. With the reward he got for his wickedness, Judas bought a field. There he fell headlong, his body burst open, and all his intestines spilled out. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this, so they called that field in their language, Ekeldama, that is, field of blood. For, said Peter, it is written in the book of Psalms, may his place be deserted, let there be no one to dwell in it, and may another take his place of leadership.
2: All right, thank you. So here we, get, we see Peter kind of assuming, again, the natural leadership of all the disciples here at this time. They're referring to one of the Psalms here, or Peter's referring to one of the Psalms, that they realized was speaking about uh, Judas and his uh, betrayal. Uh, let's see. Oh, my Roman numerals aren't too good. Looks like 69, maybe. Psalm 69 is part of that. Um, anyway, he had kind of forfeited his uh, position amongst the 12 by being a traitor. <laughs> and they, at least Peter, realized it was important to replace him. 12 has symbolic meaning as the number of perfection of God's people on the earth. And so there were presumably 12 tribes of Israel, although there were actually like 13. <laughs> but in a perfect world, there, there would have been 12. And since we are all about the restoration of Israel here, it is mm-hmm. important apparently that, that the number of apostles be restored from 11 to 12. And now this doesn't happen later when James is executed. They don't meet to replace him, but he he doesn't really lose his office. He just is translated into the heavenly realm uh, there by the throne with Christ, and you know continues on up in that other realm. But Judas doesn't. That didn't happen to him.
4: <laughs>
2: he met uh, physical and spiritual. Uh, perdition and uh, banishment from the presence of God for all of eternity. So uh, his place had to be filled, whereas later as the apostles give their lives in service, they are not replaced, the the original 12. You know, Paul comes along later, but he doesn't really consider himself on par with the original uh, 11 and then uh, the 12 uh, at all. And Luke in the book of Acts doesn't really call them that. There's a occasionally Paul and Barnabas are called apostles, but it's it's really in a different sense from the the twelve. So the number twelve is has symbolic meaning, and the more so if we realize that this book is all about the restoration of Israel in a more perfect state. And well, we can just mention passing that, of course, this uh, silver that was paid to uh, Judas for betraying Christ ended up buying a field where he died. And uh, we don't know if he bought it or if the Pharisees bought it, but it eventually became like a burying place for uh, those who were uh, destitute and forsaken. And uh, Judas was certainly destitute and forsaken. Yeah, and there there's the quote from Psalm 69 here, Let his habitation be made desolate, let no man dwell in it, and his office let another take. So,
3: The one they picked was not as important, though, as Paul became later on. The twelfth one they picked, I've heard that Paul was really the twelfth one. <laughs> spiritually but uh,
2: well yeah a lot of people say that some people even claim that they made a mistake. let's just go ahead and read this because it's just a few more verses read down to the end of the chapter and then we can
3: talk about it therefore it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus went in and out among us beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us for one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection so they proposed two men Joseph called Barsabas, also known as Justice and Matthias then they prayed Lord you know everyone's heart show us which of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry which Judas left to go where he belonged then they cast lots And the lot fell to Matthias. So he was added to the 11 apostles.
2: All right, very good. So Peter gives these requirements uh, for being an apostle of being together with Jesus from the beginning with the baptism of John. So this is yet another hint that all these men had already received the baptism of John as did Christ himself and then stayed with him all the way up until he was received up from us. So Paul... Of course, doesn't meet these requirements, and so obviously, because we have the Bible, we would think that uh, yeah, Paul is somehow cheated or something. But but these other men did things that just weren't written down. It's recorded in history that Matthias went to Ethiopia and and started uh, congregations in Ethiopia. Uh, we just don't have a written record, you know, of what he did and so on. So. Paul is certainly extremely important, but he's not really qualified to be one of these 12 foundations of the church, uh, which Matthias was, and we you know, we, we can't really argue, <laughs> because God set these, these qualifications, uh, not us. Interestingly, they didn't have to throw lots again that we know of. Of course, just a day or two later, they're going to receive another infusion of divine power which might have made this a moot point but um, they cast lots knowing that god would providentially determine uh, which man that he wanted to be an apostle and i mean the other man might have been sad but in in another way it was kind of a death sentence also to be an apostle so i don't hopefully he wasn't too uh, disappointed yeah.
3: Apparently, this was one time when casting lots was not a case of chance. <laughs> it was in the Lord's hands completely. Yep. Yeah.
2: All right. Well, uh, that kind of brings us to the chapter break between 1 and 2, and uh, we're about out of time. Any final thoughts or comments here on Acts chapter 1?
4: Well, I don't think we can uh, be too careful about making this delineation between the misdirection provided by the Scofield Reference Bible, which was written in 1908, rather amazingly, and uh, and and the true course of what you've described as being what what was happening in terms of of Christ's uh, presence, I can just imagine how thrilled the Zionist movement must have been when they discovered these words written in the footnotes of the Scofield Reference Bible. That said that uh, that positively, Jesus' actions were part of the plan for the reconstruction of the physical state of Israel. Uh, that uh, that must have been it must have been like a eureka experience when the uh, when the Zionists were able to find the Christian Bible and find where this uh, prediction took place, in the, even if even though in the footnotes of the 198 uh, Oxford Bible, because, of course, this gave them a tremendous advantage to try to convince uh, Christians that they should support the rebuilding of the physical, political state of Israel.
2: And, yeah, that, that has to be the main lie that is inserted into their doctrines and ideas. You know, we remember Christ in front of Pilate And he clearly states, my kingdom is not of this world. And so the the Zionist lie, or deception at least, is that the kingdom is the restoration of physical Israel. Because Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. So it is a spiritual restoration of the kingdom of David not the restoration of the physical government of Israel. And it's it's not just my opinion. I mean, we, that's the exact black and white words of Jesus. My kingdom is not of this world. So that's right there. A lot of the rest of it sounds really good and flowery, but it's based on that lie that the restoration of Israel is physical, not spiritual, which directly contradicts the words of God.
3: So Israel fulfilled is the church of of believers in Christ.
2: Yeah, again, you know, our friend Luke, not Luke the writer, but Luke Juarez, you know, pointed out that church has a lot of different meanings to different people. So when I use that word church, if I'm not talking about one local group of believers, I'm, I'm talking about this kingdom of God, which was his eternal purpose. Of all believers from Adam all the way till the end of the future, it's that's the kingdom. But it is it's a spiritual kingdom that has come without observation, to use another way Jesus described it.
1: Don't you think that using the word church should be using the word congregation when they talk about a local congregation?
2: Uh, well, you certainly can. I mean, it was one word in the Greek. Uh, ecclesia church is kind of a made-up word that doesn't really mean anything in English outside of church. It, it really, if it was translated, it would just mean the gathering or the assembly, uh, something like that, if it had been translated. So it would be clear if you distinguish that in your translation, the local assembly, the local group. Uh, congregation is, again, not a word we use in conversation too much unless we're talking about a church i prefer to use the words that are used in in our everyday conversation because it's easier to relate the bible to somebody if you don't use words that they've never heard before so yeah the local group of believers uh you know that's the local church and then the In fact, the missionary Baptists, they get really upset. They don't even use the term uh, the universal church, and they deny that it even exists. Uh, Presumably, they talk about the kingdom as the overall thing, and then the church as just a local uh, group. But it certainly is a term that needs to be carefully defined, and the the intent needs to be determined from the context
1: uh, where it's used. Great. Thank you so much, Mark. That was really an eye-opening study tonight and a lot of food for thought. We look forward to continuing on. And thanks for everybody's input tonight. It was great. Yes.
0: Thanks for listening. Be sure to tell a friend about our podcast. And please visit our website, whtt.org. You will find a wealth of information and resources like the latest Pharisee Watch and unheralded news articles. Also, you can order our new video, Christian Zionism, the Tragedy and the Turning, Part 1. Even though this video is copyrighted, we don't mind if you copy it as long as you copy all of it. Then you can educate your friends and acquaintances about the dangers of Christian Zionism. Start small, think big, and press on toward the straight gate.